Hey, Josh, it's Stephanie. I'm so sorry. Something came up and I'm not going to be able to finish this segment in time. Um, I'll explain later. This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by my fellow hosts, tablet editor-at-large, Liel Leibovitz. Pregnant pause. Hello. And tablet deputy editor, Stephanie Butnick. Hello, 37 weeks and, and, and reporting for duty. And by the time people hear this, 38 weeks and reporting for duty, right? Poo, 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 poo. Today, a special episode for you all about, well, I want Stephanie to tell you what it's all going to be about. Stephanie, what are we talking about this episode and why? So the nice thing about hosting your own podcast is that you can take things that are happening to you and make full episodes about them. So like sometimes we have episodes about Yom Kippur, which is, you know, very universal. And sometimes you're like nine months pregnant and want to do an episode exploring Jewish pregnancy. And so <laughs> I am very grateful to the team for letting us do this. But, you know. And yet when I say I want to do a being pleasantly drunk on a Wednesday evening episode, you all said it was a bad idea. It's too niche. It's too niche. <laughs> Isn't that every episode, Liel, is pleasantly hungover on a Tuesday morning with Liel? Correct. Club going up. So today we have a very special episode for our listeners. I think it will be relevant, hopefully, to all people, regardless of where you are in your life. Every human being has either gestated or been gestated. So it is actually yes. relevant to all of us, I think. Everyone's been gestated. So I think that this, this hopefully will be relevant and interesting to people. You know, we talked to experts on Jewish baby names, superstitions about pregnancy and childbirth, Jewish genetic diseases, and more. And and really, this did start because even before I got pregnant, I will say that I was thinking about the Jewish implications of all this. My husband, Ben, is a BRCA carrier, and that is a gene mutation that largely affects Ashkenazi Jews. Um, it actually affects more people than people realize, and as another thing people don't realize is, is it affects men as well. So from the start, we were thinking about what it means to essentially have a Jewish genetic disease and to sort of start this reproductive process with that in mind. So you had a super Jewish pregnancy is what so you're saying. So yes, yes. Deeply, <laughs> deeply Jewish. And then, of course, you know, all of a sudden you're like, okay, so what happens now? I'm, I'm so superstitious. Is that because I'm Jewish or I'm anxious? Like, there's so much that happens that you can tie into your Jewish experience, right? Like, I knew right from the start that I wasn't going to have a baby shower because for the most part, Jews don't typically have those. But as things sort of went along, I was like, well, why? Let's actually look into all of these things. You know, I started thinking about, you know, the women of the Bible and what fertility and what pregnancy, even like the act of baby naming, naming a child in the Bible. Like we learned about that in my religious studies classes. I mean, I really started thinking about all these things in a new context. And so what I really wanted to do with today's show, and I'm again grateful to everyone on this team for, for going along with this, is, is really interrogate all of these things, right? Why don't Ashkenazi Jews name babies after living relatives, but Sephardi Jews do? I mean, why all these things? Why are there so many superstitions that we sort of know about in our minds, but don't necessarily understand the context of? And sort of like expecting Jewishly. And, and I'm actually not the only person on this team who is expecting Jewishly. Our amazing producer, Sarah Fredman-Ader, is also part of the unorthodox baby boom. I'd say we have 100% of those who can get pregnant. Right. <laughs> are pregnant right now. We are a Jewish continuity machine. Good luck with uh, things while we're out, guys. Um, <laughs> hope the show keeps going. But, you know, I mean, I'll let you guys talk at some point when I get fully out of breath in like about 30 seconds. But, you know, the phrase Jewish continuity is just like a horrible, annoying, like, buzzword. But, like, be fruitful and multiply. I mean, this is so ingrained in what we know. And so I think now that I'm actually doing it, I'm like, huh, let's let's like, let's like actually think about all of this like a journalist. I'm really grateful, Stephanie, that you've given us a chance to do it because, you know, we, we spent so much time talking about Jewish mothers or Jewish fathers or Jewish parenthood. Well, less Jewish time children. about Jewish fathers. 
<laughs> well, less time about Jewish fathers, but even less time about about exactly this, about, right, let's call it Jewish conception, right, about the process, which is, as you said, is so wrought with symbolism, with meaning, with, with historical relevancies, with like little bizarre curiosities that are actually not only incredibly important in the course of our own lives, but also kind of shape our whole relationship to what we think and how we feel about being pregnant and having children. So, this is great. I mean, I come from it mostly being a man and also incredibly superstitious. I come from it mostly from the superstition angle. I remember still when Lisa was pregnant with both of our children, how deeply ingrained in me the whole superstition aspect was and how incredibly torturous just registering for baby things was. So I'm very much looking forward to this Mark, episode. You're the most fathery here. <laughs> <laughs> My gut clenched up when you said registering for baby things. Look, it's part of the like hyper-consumerism, the like, baby industrial complex, right? Like you need all this and this and this, they, or they say you do. Absolutely. And you know, there's no one way to do the buildup to having a child. There's no one way to do pregnancy. And, and you know, the children get here and then of course they thrive and they're fine. And I only bring to this as somebody who's not particularly superstitious and whose wife, by the way, interestingly, was not not very interested in the culture of pregnancy. And actually, I think one of her ways of dealing with it all, dealing with insane amounts of morning sickness for each of her pregnancies, was to really not talk about it so much. So, I mean, I'm here where the only experience I have in all of this, of course, is having seen my wife through five pregnancies that came to fruition and almost as many that didn't, something I've talked about on the air before. But I'm here to learn. And I'm really excited to, to learn about aspects of pregnancy and pregnancy culture and technology around it and superstition around it that I didn't know about. And I'm also excited to see what mail we get, because obviously we're going to over look things. We are three Ashkenazi Jews, only one of whom actually has been pregnant and none of whom has ever birthed a child as of this recording. But our listeners come from an extraordinary range of backgrounds, an extraordinary range of experiences of fertility, infertility, Judaism, non-Judaism, different kinds of Judaism. And I just know we're going to get the best mail ever. People are going to write to us at unorthodoxatabletmag.com, call us at 914-570-4869 and share with us stories that are going to be the seeds, if you will, the germination, the genesis, the of future segments and future episodes. So let's get to it. What do we have going on in this episode, Stephanie? Yeah, Bashar Tova, in good time, <laughs> you will find out. <laughs> right? Because no one says Mazel Tov, you only say Bashat Tova. We will wish ourselves Mazel Tov when the episode is over, not a moment before, but it's been delivered. Yes. As I learned when I became pregnant, you don't say Mazel Tov to someone who's pregnant. You don't say congratulations. You say this phrase Bashat Tova, which I believe is only about pregnancy, which means in good time. It's like a, the single use appliance of the Jewish greetings world. And the superstition already arriving. Like we're two minutes into the episode, already superstition. Bashat Tova. Okay, so getting down to it. A moment ago, we heard Stephanie mention the fact that her husband, Ben, is a carrier of the BRCA gene. And this is relevant because the gene is found commonly in Ashkenazi families. So while Stephanie goes off to attend to whatever business might have come up during the recording of this week's episode that we have to let her go attend to, and we'll have a little bit more on that later in the episode, we want to begin this journey by looking into that question of BRCA. So we spoke with Esty Rose, who is a genetic counselor and outreach coordinator for JScreen, a nonprofit at Emory University that provides genetic testing and counseling for Jews. Here's our conversation with Esty Rose. Hi, 
My name is Esty Rose, and I am a genetic counselor for JScreen. There are many genetic diseases that are more commonly found in people who have Jewish ancestry and Jewish background. As Jews, we tend to have more diseases than other populations because of our history. So we've been through a couple or, or more than a couple of episodes where the size of our population has had dramatic changes. We've been through the Crusades, we've been through the pogroms, we've been through the Holocaust. So let's take a big city in Poland in the 1920s as an example. So let's say there's this city that has 5,000 Jews and only one of those 5,000 people is a Tay-Sachs carrier. Not that common. However, in the 1940s with the Holocaust, let's say that the size of that city decreased dramatically and one of the survivors from the city happened to be that Tay-Sachs carrier. So no longer was he one in 5,000 people in the community. Now he's only, let's say, one in 100. So now the carrier rate for Tay-Sachs went from one in 5,000 to one in 100, much more common. We've also seen in our history that we're really good at rebuilding and expanding our families after such events. So if this one guy, this one Tay-Sachs carrier, starts having children and grandchildren, that Tay-Sachs mutation is going to be passed down to more and more people over the years. Another thing is that we tend to marry within our own group. So carriers of a couple diseases are marrying other carriers and they're perpetuating this carrier status. Not that there's anything wrong with intermarrying, I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm just saying that we need to be more careful when we're planning for our families. And the way to do that is to get genetic testing when planning for a pregnancy. So there are many, many different genetic conditions that are very commonly found in the Jewish community. I'm sure you've heard of Tay-Sachs disease before. About one in 30 people who are Ashkenazi or Eastern European Jewish is going to be a carrier of Tay-Sachs. Um, mutations in other genes like cancer genes, like the BRCA or BRCA gene, are also much more common in the Jewish community. So somebody who's Ashkenazi, it doesn't make a difference if they come from Polish background or Russian background or Hungarian background. We all have the same genes. Each Sparty community has its own set of diseases that are more commonly found in that community. So an Iranian Jew, for example, has a very different genetic background than a Moroccan Jew, and they have a very different genetic background than a Bukharian Jew. So every group of Spartis has to think about their own set of genetic diseases. Some of the common Sparty and Mizrahi diseases that we see at J-Screen are pseudocholinesterase deficiency, familial Mediterranean fever, G6PD deficiency, hereditary inclusion and body myopathy. We are so lucky to have the technology and the resources available to our community that we can prevent devastating things from happening. So I very much support the concept of genetic testing when couples are planning to have a child. All right, so on this pregnancy journey, let's say that you get to the point where you're finally ready to conceive, you've had your genetic counseling, and you feel ready to embark on conception. Well, as it turns out, for certain communities of people, and I'm thinking of people in the Orthodox community, in rare cases, following the Orthodox rules around sex can give you trouble conceiving if your fertility window is in the days between when you have your period and when you go to the mikvah and then can resume marital relations. It's all a little bit complicated. So we talked to Dr. Batsheva Lerner-Maslow, who's a reproductive endocrinologist, and she talked to us about how she helps these women whose religious observance can sometimes make conceiving more difficult. Hi, I'm Batsheva. 
Cheva Maslow. I'm a reproductive endocrinologist and infertility specialist. I'm Orthodox. I'm part of the Orthodox community, and I generally kind of attract a large Orthodox patient population. And so I spend a lot of my time grappling with the intricacies of how an Orthodox Jewish lifestyle blends with reproduction and reproductive technologies. Reproductive technologies have developed at breakneck speeds over the last 40 years and by and large have been extraordinarily well adapted into the Orthodox communities almost because of that important value of growing Jewish families in a way that traditional religious cultures, other religions have not necessarily embraced reproductive technologies in that way. Orthodox women may be coming to me for a variety of reasons. I think one of the unique things that I, as a reproductive specialist, will notice when we see Orthodox women is that there are kind of intricacies of halakha or Jewish law that sometimes can sort of weave their way into how conceptions or family building are happening. And, you know, the the kind of importance of timing of ovulation and going to the mikvah, the ritual bath, definitely is a unique thing that we see really only in, in an Orthodox population that we wouldn't see really anywhere else. The reproductive timeline is very particular and very precise. And the timeline that that you get as a result of observing the laws of mikvah can also end up being very particular and very precise. Many times these two timelines are going to overlap in a way that's going to facilitate conception. So there's this very, very short period of time that conception can occur. And in a typical 28-day cycle, it almost always is going to fall out after the mikvah. The mikvah is typically going to end up being around day 12, day 13, and typical ovulations happen around day 14, day 15. So you actually get this concentration of couples having intercourse around the time that's going to be most likely to, to, to lead to conception until it doesn't, because not every menstrual cycle is going to follow the way the textbook says it should. And so you can have some women who have longer menstrual cycles, and then the opposite might be true. So women who have shorter cycles, you know, 24 day cycles, 25 day cycles, they may be ovulating on day 10 or day 11. And if that's consistently happening, then they're consistently not having intercourse on the days that are going to be most likely to lead to a conception. And colloquially, we've called this halachic infertility or infertility as a result of Jewish law. What can we do from a medical biological standpoint to delay ovulation? One of the things we can do is really use our knowledge of the menstrual cycle to our advantage. Part of the reason we end up with early ovulation is that you're getting this sort of overly aggressive, overly excited stimulation from the brain to the ovary to select an egg to grow. And so what we want to do is is actually suppress that urge and kind of trick the brain into not quite being as excited to pull an egg that soon. Estrogen in the natural menstrual cycle is produced by the egg or by the ovary as the egg is developed. And so that's the message to the brain that, okay, we've got an egg growing, you can stop. And so what we do is we have women take estrogen in the beginning of their menstrual cycle. That sort of cools down that stimulation from the brain until they get closer to the mikvah. And then kind of the simplest thing to do is we can actually just wean them off the estrogen and then the menstrual cycle just picks up where it left off. And so you just sort of naturally shift the menstrual cycle down by a few days. This was a protocol that was developed by an Israeli reproductive specialist. I use it very frequently, but it's actually pretty easy from a medical standpoint. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. 
Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamou, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Now, look, if you've listened to this podcast, you know that all three of us, well, Stephanie and myself, Mark less so, are very, very superstitious. Superstition is a deep part of the Jewish tradition, and nowhere is that more true than when it comes to being pregnant, a process that brings with it so many different and fascinating superstitions. We wanted to understand them, to really grapple with them, not to just say tfu, 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 but to understand what's behind all these superstitions. Why do we do all the things that we do and all, and why do we believe all these things that we believe? So first we talked to Rabbi Michal Springer, who works at New York Presbyterian Hospital, to try and really understand the bigger picture of pregnancy-related superstitions. These customs, I think, are respectful of the fact that we're not in charge of when life comes into this world. We can help it along. It's miraculous what we can do to help it along. But the bottom line is the actual birth of a human being is so mind-boggling and brings us in touch with the fact that as human beings, we are limited and we are connected to something so magnificent and gorgeous that is life that we are not in charge of. Those customs about not having a baby shower or waiting, it reminds us not to jump ahead of ourselves, which is the best parenting advice anyone could ever give us because we don't know who that child is going to be. Dara Horn is a scholar and one of our greatest living Jewish writers, or writers of any sort for that matter. She's obsessed with many things, but if there's one thing that she absolutely loves being obsessed with, it's Jewish superstitions, particularly those rooted in the Talmud, a mysterious and magical book rich with so many demons, evil eyes, and spirits just looking for innocent people, especially pregnant women, to prey on. Here's Dara explaining to us some of the Talmudic roots of pregnancy-related superstitions. What's so funny about the, I guess we could call superstitions or just customs or practices around pregnancy and Judaism is that a lot of them are so ingrained that they're the sort of thing that you don't even realize is a practice that's particular to a certain culture. You just think it's the way you do things until you meet your friend who's not doing those things. The main things are about basically not revealing the pregnancy as long as you can get away with it. You don't tell people you're pregnant like the minute you find out you're pregnant. A lot of it traces back to this belief in what's known in Hebrew as ayin hara, which means the evil eye, right? And it's this idea that other people are wishing you ill and that this is somehow going to you know, sort of activate energy in the world that's going to be uh, harmful to you or your child. This is actually a belief that is far beyond pregnancy in the Ashkenazi world. And you see it even in just Yiddish 
language practices. It's something that you would never say something positive about someone else without adding this phrase kinahara, which is a Yiddish pronunciation of no evil eye. You could say, oh, it's superstition. And it goes back to these ancient beliefs about demons and this kind of thing, which, yes, this is a monotheistic religion. Anyone who's ever read the Talmud knows there's a whole lot of demons in it, too, that we don't talk about in modern practice. I think what it really just is, is a humility in front of what you can't control. You know, pregnancy is a terrifying experience, and obviously it was more terrifying in the past. There are other superstitions. There's, of course, the custom that a lot of people know about, which is, you know, you don't buy anything for the baby before the baby is born. One that was absolutely pervasive in the pre-modern world, but still does exist in the current modern world, is the practice of using something called a kamea. A kamea is an amulet. Traditionally, it would have been like a parchment or something, and you'd wear it around your neck or as a bracelet. Today, they tend to be more like jewelry. And these are almost like an incantation or a spell in a way. Some have just like sort of letters that have some mystical significance or they tend to be prayers to prevent pain during childbirth. That's one that I wore during my pregnancies. Um, Something else that, again, was pervasive in the pre-modern Ashkenazi world are tichinus. These were like women's prayers that were written in Yiddish and that were really personal supplications to God for particular moments in a woman's life. So as you can imagine, there are many that are written pertaining to pregnancy and birth. They're really different from traditional Jewish liturgy. Traditional Jewish liturgy is meant to be recited communally. We have very few sort of private prayers. These were really women's prayers. They were, and they were, were not written in Hebrew, they were written in Yiddish and really were written for women to recite in these you know, difficult moments in their lives. There's a discussion in the Talmud about a pregnant woman's cravings, and it's actually one of these passages that's actually quite surprising because it says something to the effect of, you know, if a pregnant woman craves pork, you should allow her to smell it. And then, you know, if that doesn't satisfy her craving, you allow her to drink some of the juice. And if that doesn't satisfy her craving, then she can eat it because if she's craving it that badly, obviously for her, it's a matter of life and death. There is a strong belief that pregnant women shouldn't enter a cemetery. If you study any Talmud, you know that ancient sages care a lot about something like ritual purity. There are many categories of people who are supposed to avoid cemeteries. For pregnant women, it was less about this idea of ritual purity than about this idea that when you're pregnant, you're very vulnerable. And there was this idea that demons hang out in cemeteries, demons hang out in ruins. As a pregnant woman, you're especially vulnerable to this kind of demon. What's interesting is that that is one of those beliefs that has become so pervasive that it sort of transcends that idea of superstition becomes really just a common practice where like you're like, wow, that feels wrong. What I think is interesting about it, though, is how pervasive those taboos are beyond the community that you would think would follow them. That there are people who are not following any kind of traditional Jewish law at all, but who would never dream of having a baby shower. Darahorn's remarkable new book, People Love Dead Jews, is out this fall. Friends, lest you think that only the Ashkenazim have crazy, ridiculous, indefensible superstitions. Oh, no, no. (laughs) Sephardi Jews as well have such ridiculous, crazy, unbelievably indefensible superstitions. And here I'm showing my bias as the least superstitious of the the me, Liel, and Stephanie trio. Uh, But... What a great pleasure to have on uh, tablet writer Esther Levy-Shahabar, who joined us to talk about the mystical properties of the number five in Sephardi tales around pregnancy. My grandma has this story where her mother was craving liver and she was pregnant with her fifth child. 
which you're not even supposed to say five. So there you go. There's another one. That's the Hamsa. But she was pregnant with her last child and she did not indulge in her liver craving and instead scratched the back of her calf. And her son was born with a mark on his calf. So this is the superstition is that if you don't indulge a craving specifically of a food that tends to stain, so like liver in this case, or a strawberry or beets or something like whatever it may be, and you scratch, your baby will be born with a mark in the part of their body that you scratched. So the number five is the hamsa. So the hamsa is the hand, is you know the symbol that everyone sort of recognizes it by. And when my kids were born, each of them got a hamsa, a hand charm from my grandmother, and they sleep with it under their crib mattresses and they go to bed on top of it every single night. And it's supposed to ward off the evil eye. And, you know, even if somebody else doesn't necessarily believe in the hamsa, you're still not supposed to use the number five, for example, just in case they think that you're hamsaing them. So when I was in my fifth month of pregnancy, we would say, you know, I'm four plus one, or I'm six minus one, or just say I'm 20 weeks. Anything to avoid the number five, basically. Mark, that was amazing, but I still can't believe you said the number out loud. She told you not to say the number, uh, and you said the number. I'm so. How many children do you have again? Oh gosh, I'm so I'm so bad at this. Uh, I shouldn't even be allowed anywhere near this show. Unfortunately, I'm doing more of this show than I thought I would because Stephanie, for reasons that um, may become clear later in the show, threw a lot of the work on us. I gotta say, some of the work, however, was a great, great pleasure, including talking to Rabbi Miriam Sima Walfish, who is about to join the faculty of the Hadar Institute. And we asked Rabbi Walfish to take our pregnancy discussion all the way back to the roots of Judaism. Here's Rabbi Miriam Sima Walfish talking with us about pregnancy in the Bible. Having a baby in the ancient world gave you a certain amount of currency as a woman. So the whole rivalry between Sarah and Hagar, her maidservant, has to do with that. So Sarah is infertile and she says, seems like I'm not going to have a baby. So I'm going to give my husband my maidservant and maybe I'm going to have a baby through her. And then her maidservant gets pregnant. And then suddenly her maidservant is treating her mistress with a little less respect. They're both kind of stuck in this patriarchal system where all that matters to them at least, is have they managed to produce offspring for their husband? So I think we often like to hate on Sarah for how she treats Hagar, but reading it again today, I was just feeling so much empathy. So the next matriarch, Rebecca, also has a very dramatic story, and it's one of the only biblical stories that I know of that actually deal with the months of pregnancy itself. So it says when Rivka got pregnant, the children struggled in her womb. And she said, if so, why am I? (laughs) What I love about this verse is that it's so rich in terms of Rivka's own emotional experience around this pregnancy. Because again, the text says that she's been longing for a child for so long, and finally she conceives, and then she is in terrible pain. And so she is caught in this bind that I think is not foreign to many women. Then if the pregnancy is a rough pregnancy, you start thinking, wait a minute, (laughs) I've wanted this for so long, but now I'm feeling 
horrible. Going back to the struggle, it's so interesting because the word for struggle comes from the word to run. So it's like she feels these babies like running around (laughs) inside her, these twins, and it just causes her such agony. And then she goes and actually asks God, why? What is going on? And she ends up receiving this prophecy about her children and how they are going to struggle against each other in life. And they're each going to become great nations who are going to struggle against one another. And so her suffering ends up being contextualized in this broader national narrative. But it starts from this very personal space of this pregnancy is causing me to suffer. Hey, J.Crew, it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Brous and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Charbar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. Mark, where's Stephanie again this week? I, I, I mean, she's somewhere in town, somewhere on the island of Manhattan. I, I don't know. To be, I mean, to be discussed later. I think, I think we'll have word later in the episode where she is. Before she scurried off to do whatever it is that she may be doing uh, at, at this very moment, she talked to best-selling author Anita Diamond, who's best known for her novel, The Red Tent, but is also the author of a series of really, really special books about virtually every aspect of Jewish life, including having Jewish babies. And Stephanie, in particular, talked to her about something very, very relevant. What is it that we name our newborn babies and why. Here's Stephanie with author Anita Diamond. Welcome, Anita. It's a privilege to have you back on the show. Oh, it's great to be back. Thank you for inviting me. So you have such an interesting career because in addition to your best-selling novels, The Red Tent and The Boston Girl and others, you've also written this series of wonderfully accessible guides to modern Jewish life. It feels like if there's a Jewish life cycle event, there is an Anita Diamant book to walk you through it. There's the Jewish wedding now, which you've came on the show to discuss. There's choosing a Jewish life. There's living a Jewish life. There's how to raise a Jewish child and more. Today, we're going to focus on the new Jewish baby book. 
So I want to know, just to get started, what inspired you to write this book? Because there was no book. I had a baby girl and there was nothing. There was no book. And my friends, you know, my cohort, we got mimeographed files and from, you know, the rabbis would Xerox folders and, and send them. And then my friends were having boys dealing with circumcision, with Bruce. And even the ones who had no doubt that they were going to do that, it was a challenge. And they, I think they wanted it to be meaningful in a way that it wasn't because there was no explanation. Well, it's so funny because it's, there's what stroller to get, what crib to get. And then there's sort of like the spiritual metaphysical realm of like (laughs) what Jewish rituals to participate in. And did you feel like everyone had one of those things covered, but not at all the other? Or there were resources at least for the strollers? Oh yeah, the stro- I mean, you could find, uh, this is pre-internet shopping, <laughs> by the way. But yeah, no, you'd ask your friends which one was the best and you would, you know, car seats were the big debate at the time. It was like, which is the best one? And so that was it. Sure, you could always find something somewhere. There's Parenting Magazine and all these other magazines. So yeah. Your book is such a wonderful resource to me personally, as I am in this moment pregnant and wondering, you know, it seems like at these milestone moments when you get married, when you have a baby, this is sort of when young Jews really start to think of, wait, what do I want my Jewish wedding to look like? How Jewish should it be? Is it going to be on a Saturday? What kind of rabbi? I mean, a lot of these things we've gotten passes on, right? You could sort of be culturally Jewish very easily. When it comes to these life cycle moments, we really suddenly want that. And it also feels to me like a lot of these traditions that I'm reading about, particularly in the new Jewish baby book, I mean, they were sort of like second nature to people for a lot of their lives when we lived in more communal societies, more religious societies, in whatever sort of old country we all come from. How can those traditions that you've sort of unearthed and and explained really nicely in this book, how can they help us in our modern lives? There's a lot of hair pulling about the loss of community and the loss of traditions. And it's true in the past when people lived in tight neighborhoods, often enforced upon them, right, ghettos and shtetls, you did know, I mean, you went to, you saw what a wedding looked like. You saw what a funeral looked like. You actually saw what a dead body looked like. You knew what would go on when a baby was born. So all of that was just part of growing up in that world. And so there's a lot of nostalgia for that. I'm not into nostalgia. What we get in this new world without all of that is a lot of creativity. And we have Brit Bat, we have ceremonies for daughters, which actually Sephardic Jews did have something and Ashkenazi Jews really had nothing. And creative ceremonies, creative ways of doing things. I, you know, I was the founding president of Mayim Chaim and Mikvah. Now there are a whole list of ceremonies that mark wanting to get pregnant, getting pregnant, being pregnant, looking forward to the birth, after the birth. So we have sacralized parts of Jewish life that were not touched because basically because it was for women. So I think we get stuff (laughs) as well as we have lost stuff. On balance, I'm happy to be here now. I am happy to be here now with you, especially. (laughs) I think that's so right, this idea of the creativity that you can take these ancient rituals or maybe rituals that did not exist in this in the way that, that we've reestablish them and make them relevant to our lives and to add that Jewish inflection to this really amazing time of life when you are literally bringing new life into this world. So even before all this, I feel like the first thing that comes up very early on is this idea of names. I remember sort of trying to explain the Jewish naming conventions to some of my friends who are not Jewish, and they were sort of like, what? It's just a let, like, you know, there's no, you can name after a living person. Like, it's so sort of funny to me, the specificity of the Jewish naming customs. And you do a lot about this in your book. You actually have an amazing guide to Jewish names where you list out a bunch of them, which I found really, really helpful. So could you tell us a little bit, you write, for Jews, a name is a complicated gift. So let's get into names. Let's start at the beginning. Naming and names in the Bible, that's like a really, that's a really big thing. Will you start from there and 
Adam and Eve supposedly named all the animals, right? So they start there by giving them names. And I, my Hebrew is ridiculously non-existent, but davar, which is, means word, right? It also means thing. So there's, this, there's a sense in which, even in that language, that the name of something is its essence at the same time. So also what's interesting in the Bible is there's only one David. There's no David the second or the third or the fourth. There's no granddaughter named Rachel or Rebecca. They just occur one time. So they're singular and they have a lot of power. The names have a lot of power for that reason, I think, because we've been reading their names for centuries now. So, so that's kind of the, the oldest part of our tradition. And then there's all this Talmudic stuff about a good name, the importance of a good name, which is about reputation. But um, there's also a kind of magical thing that the evil eye can be assuaged by charity and Torah study and one other thing and changing name. So if a baby was sick, they would change his name to Alter, which means old. So the angel of death would not take that baby because they would think it's an old person. So it doesn't, it's not as delicious. So that's the old, the old stuff. There is a lot about it. When did we get last names? But Generally, we're talking about given names, first names. So I don't know exactly when this split, but for Ashkenazic Jews, you name after dead relatives. And in fact, if you want to name an, after an Ashkenazic living relative, your grandmother might be really upset because it sounds like you're wishing she was dead. But in Sephardic communities, there's sort of a horror of naming after a dead relative. And children are named, actually, there's a kind of a, a roadmap after living grandparents. So the, the first son is named after the father's father and the second son is named after the mother's father and the first daughter. So in some communities, it's like that. So, but, so it's, it's just a convention. It's just culture. Our traditions are as cultural as they are grounded in, in religious tradition. And, and people have been railing against the use of secular names since like Alexander, for example, has been a Jewish name for centuries, decades, <laughs> eons. And the rabbis didn't like it in the very beginning, but it stuck. It was a was a strong name and they named him, they named their sons Alexander. And so it's gone generation after generation, older generations getting angry about the names that their their adult children are naming their children. It's funny, I have a friend who is fairly religious and has a number of siblings. And when their grandfather died, everyone named their next kid after that same grandfather. So technically they kind of all had similar variations on the same name, but they were all named after the same deceased beloved relative, which I hadn't actually even heard of. To have more than one. Yeah. In my family, it was like, no, he already got the name, so I can't use the name. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of that. Yes. There's a lot of that. So <laughs> I, I would assume that the offspring who are named after the grandfather have some, there's some variation in their name. So it's, if it's Menachem, it's Menachem Mendel or it's Baruch Menachem. Or, so the name continues. And it does keep the memory alive because if you do name a child after somebody, that's part of the story you tell the child as they grow up right? You're named for my grandfather who had a great sense of humor and was very generous. And that becomes part of their heritage too. That you know, we hope, and this is said a lot at, at namings, that we hope you grow up to be like the person we're naming you after because she was so generous and she was so kind and she loved reading and family meant everything to her. So you're not just giving a name, you're giving qualities that attend the memory of that name. There's also the funny thing where you sort of give the Hebrew name of the relative and then like the very Americanized version that starts with the same letter. Yeah, it's not even a, it's not even a version. It's like my when I had when I was pregnant, low those many years ago. I had to start with an E. My grandmother's name was Esther, and she hated the name Esther. She called herself Louise. Nobody ever called her <laughs> Esther, so it had to be an E name. Certainly, I don't think my mother would have wanted me to name her Esther. My, my grandmother would have been horrified. So we found an E name, and that's been going on for a long time. The connection is. Tenuous. It's the, it's a letter. It's a sound, but having two names is also traditional. The for men in particular, 
There was the name you got called to the Torah by, which was a sort of holy name. And then there was the name you used on the street. It's not just a, a modern invention. It's, it's something that has been used in other cultures and in the past. So you can feel okay about you know, doing that. It's also so funny. We talk about it a lot on the show, just this idea of like from generation to generation in America, the names change so much. <laughs> yeah. And you write that there were like Molly's and Nettie's one generation, and then their kids were Rosalind and Leonard, and their kids were Ellen and Gail, who are like the boomers now, <laughs> who had Jennifer's and Josh's. So so how do we sort of track American Jewish life, the American Jewish experiment, through the first names, the non-Hebrew first names that we were given? It's fashion, you know. Jennifer was a big name. It wasn't just Jews. <laughs> In elementary school, there are many, many Jennifers. And now there are many, many Rachels and Rebecca's, not just Jewish and not just in Jewish day schools, but biblical names were making a comeback even when I wrote this book. And I continue, I think, to make that comeback. And also the sort of Yiddish names, right? So lots of Maxes and Ikes. Isaac was not a name. A lot of people were naming their kids for a long time. And even Moses is being used now, which is would have been a I can't imagine someone in my generation doing that among liberal Jews to name your kid Moshe. I know. I feel like on the streets of Brooklyn, there's like boys named Sid and Saul. Yeah, like, yeah, it's just, yeah exactly. It's really... Exactly. It's like they're all they're all tailors and you know, yeah. <laughs> and shopkeepers and, and just tiny old men. Yes, they're little old men, and now they are tiny little Jewish boys. So yes. they're great names. And I'm always tickled when someone I know just named their daughter Hazel. And I, I don't know if that was a, a name that accompanied Betty and, and Molly back then, but it would have been, you know, also Lily and Rose. Those were really old, old lady names. And they're very popular now. They're really popular. Yeah. There's like this future looking, right? Because you're naming a child. But then there's this nostalgia for the old timey names of whatever generation. Names your parents would hate, probably. Right. Exactly. Categorize them as. <laughs> yeah. And again, I don't think this is just Jews. I think this yeah. is lots of biblical names altogether. Josh, you know, is very popular. And Joel, the prophets. And one name that hasn't made a big comeback, which I don't quite understand, is Ruth. There are not a lot of Ruths. And it's a great story and it's a you know great heritage to have that be part of your your own story. I feel like post-Ruth Bader Ginsburg, we are going to get uh, a, a surge of Ruths who are, yes. have been born, like those pandemic babies are going to be yeah. named Ruth or like Ruthie. And you think when you give a kid a biblical name, that becomes part of their story too. And then, oh, Rachel, there's Rachel's in the Bible and I'm Rachel and your grandmother was Rachel and she had a grandmother yeah. named Rachel. And so it connects you to this text. And if you're Jewish and you want your child to have that connection to text, it doesn't have to be the name they use on the street either. It can also be the name they use in shul. And, you know, they didn't used to give girls Hebrew names. They often were just Fagel and whatever the Yiddish was. And they didn't have a Hebrew name because they weren't called to the Torah. So there was no real need to give a girl a Hebrew name. I mean, there's also the main Hebrew name that a lot of girls are, like girls are getting names now, like like Noah with no H. Right. right? Like they're getting actual Hebrew names now here in America. And Hebrew names were starting to come into vogue when I wrote this book and they continue to be. And they and they proliferate. Actually, I think people have gotten more creative. And Noah and OA, actually, I know somebody who's 50 whose name is Noah, but I think she was an outlier. But now, but now Noah, I've, I've heard lots of little girls running around with the name Noah. You have to be comfortable if you're living in America. You have to feel some safety from anti-Semitism if you're going to call your kid Baruch on the street. Yeah. <laughs> and you don't live in an, in an enclosed community where that's not an issue. But we're living in a time where anti-Semitism is very much on the agenda again. So there's a kind of safety in it. One of the things I was looking at also is in Germany before World War II, names like Jaime and Izzy were popular among Jews. They just liked the names. Mm -hmm. but they, then they became epithets. 
And the same thing happened in the United States. Climbing, I think, you know, became a, an epithet for Jews. But they were they were names that Jews picked for themselves, and then they got twisted into slurs. Is Izzy for like Israelite? Yeah, is, or wow. Isidore. Is, Isidore. Oh, Isidore. Isidore. Isidore is a big name, which is also is Israel is a kinui for Isidore. But all those names. There's an amazing thing. I feel like the two, like what you're saying, is right. Yes, there's definitely people who will shy away from overtly Jewish names, but then I think there are the people who are going to say, you know, I'm actually doubling down by giving my child a visibly Jewish name. Or modern Hebrew name, yeah, which is another statement. You know, I know lots of Ariellas, and I think that's pretty common in Israel, and Liat and Lior. Those are names I hear here as well, which I think are much more common in Israel than they are where I live. You know, I love that they sort of tell a story. They tell an American story. They tell a Jewish story. So the book is the new Jewish baby book. Anita, thank you so much for being with us today. You're welcome. You're wonderful. Thank you so much. Mazel tovs. Liel, I, I think that we have a, uh, a group Mazel tov this week. I think we have, we have one biggie this week. Am I right? I think we have one massive Mazel tov from all of us with so much excitement and love to Stephanie Butnick and Ben Cohen for the birth of beautifully named Edith Isadora Cohen. Mazel tov. Born literally yesterday as we were recording this here podcast. We haven't met you yet, but we already love you and you uh, will join our weekly recordings as soon as mama lets you. You know, there's an old Ashkenazi superstition. I believe it it comes from uh, the town of Pinsk uh, that if you are born during the recording of your mother's podcast, it is auspicious. There, there's a strong probability that you actually are Moshiach if you are born during the recording of Mama's podcast. You you win a lifetime supply of Harry's razors. <laughs> Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. Send your thoughts, including advice for Stephanie and Ben, the new parents, to 914-570-4869 or to unorthodox at tabletmag.com or call and leave them a mazel tov, 914-570-4869. Subscribe to our newsletter at bit.ly slash unorthodox podcast. Join our Facebook group. Follow us on Twitter or Instagram. Also Friendster. We're still on Friendster as it happens. Our show is produced by Josh the K and Sarah the FA. Our associate producer is Robert the S. Artwork this week by Kurt the H. Hoffman. Theme music by Golem. Mailbox theme by Stevie B. And Jewish Parenting this week by Ben Cohen and Stephanie Butnick. We come to you from the scattered studios of Argo in the diaspora. See you soon. Shalom, friends. My absolute favorite story in the Talmud about pregnancy is this story uh, about what happens to a child in its mother's womb. And there is this whole concept of how God chooses this child's soul when the child is conceived, places the soul in the mother's womb. And then during the next nine months, there's this child's soul goes through this educational process where that child is taught all of the Torah, of course, because, you know, these are rabbis talking. That's the most important thing they want this child to learn. Child is taught all of the Torah. The child is taught all the 70 languages of the world. The child is shown a preview of that child's life. They're shown the place where they're going to be born, the place where they're going to live their life, and the place where they're going to die. Um, 
They're told sort of all of these secrets of the world that no one else knows that have never been revealed to living people. And there is an angel of forgetfulness who just before the child's born strikes the child across the mouth saying, Shh, never tell these secrets. And that's why we have this dent below our nose. This is the mark from the angel of forgetfulness. And then after we're born, we've, of course, forgotten all of those things we've learned, and we have to spend the rest of our lives trying to remember them again. Don't drop that baby. Poo, 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 poo.